So yesterday, uh, Tanisara began teaching about the five spiritual faculties. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with this schema, this is one of the Buddhist lists. The Buddha, uh, if you don't know, was um, very good at making lists. He was, some people think he was a little um, compulsive that way. Or, but he made a lot of lists about the, you know, three refuges or the four noble truths or the four foundations of mindfulness or the five hindrances or the five spiritual faculties or the, you know, seven factors of enlightenment or the ten paramis or the twelve links <laughs> of dependent origination. And they're, they're, they're really part of the teaching pedagogy of his time because there was nothing written down. And so if you organized things and made them into lists, then people could repeat them easily, more easily, and then study in that way. So there were helpful ways to study and to learn. And this list, the five spiritual faculties, are basically um, faith or trust is one of the faculties, energy or persistence or vigor is one of the faculties, Mindfulness is one of the faculties. Concentration or samadhi or unification of mind is one of the faculties. And wisdom or understanding is one of the faculties. And the five faculties are understood as qualities of heart that we can develop and that become the ground and the nourishment for spiritual development. They become the bases for spiritual development. And as we practice and as they develop, um, as, they begin to, as we begin to mature with practice, what happens is that our conventional and habitual and instinctual reacti reactivity is said to be replaced by these, or replaced or, or we could say supplanted by these virtues. Of, of faith and of concentration and of persistence and of mindfulness and of wisdom and that they reorient our relationship to life. They give us a different set of um, a different ground in which to engage our life from and this ground allows for further development. And the faculties are also, they're sometimes called virtues and the virtue is a really important lost word, virtue. It's used a lot in Buddhism. It's not used, we don't use virtue so much today. We don't, we don't even value virtue. We don't, you know, when people talk about a virtuous person, usually the association is often that maybe they're naive or they're not sophisticated or they're not worldly or something like that. We don't, we, the word virtue um, uh, has the same root as the word virility. And virtue is a power. It implies power. And the, the power here is the power of um, faith, the power of confidence, the power of trust, or the power of um, a concentrated mind or the power of energy 
uh, and effort or the power of mindfulness or the power of wisdom because these, as these develop as we start to develop them as faculties they become powers and it's not dissimilar to any skill or any art that we develop Sometimes people, when after somebody becomes a really good writer, people start talking about what a powerful writer they are, how much impact they have, because their writing is so good and it's so powerful. Or, or it could be a singer, or it could be, um, it could be any skill that, when it's truly developed, that it and it becomes um, not only part of the fabric of who we are but the ground of who we are we begin to tap the power that's inherent in the virtue so just a teeny overview and then I'm going to talk more about the mindfulness as a faculty and as a virtue as a power Um, faith provides the basis for practice, the motivation to practice. That when even even the first inkling of faith, like we hear the Buddha Dharma and it makes sense, it gives us enough faith to begin to practice, to, to want more and to see that more is possible. And that faith begins to orient us in a certain direction. And then, of course, that faith needs some energy for it to move. Energy is like the gas for the car, that the car, the car doesn't move and they won't move pretty soon when the gas runs out, of course, <laughs> you know. But, but energy, uh, a kind of vigor or persistence is important in practice, not like, oh, we read about practice, we sit down, we meditate once, nothing happened, okay, well, that's, I'm done. It doesn't work that way. And that, that's true with any practice, whether it's a meditative uh, art or, or contemplative art or, or any of the arts, whether it's an athletic endeavor or an intellectual endeavor, that we need to persist. We need our energy to move forward, to deepen. Concentration is very important in our endeavor here because it co- provides the composure the collectedness and the nourishment that comes when we begin to unify our experience. Wisdom is the um, understanding that comes, is the insight that comes, that as we make our um, efforts, that we persist, that we get unified, that we become mindful, we begin to see clearly, that we begin to understand the Dharma, We begin to see that the Dharma is not um, an abstract philosophy, but that it's a living reality that not only impacts our life, but as we understand it, we begin to impact life with the Dharma. We become, not only does the Dharma change us, awaken us, mature us, but then our response to the world is a Dharmic response. And that response starts, that, that development begins to loop. That it's not just that we awaken, but our awakening moves into the world also. Which, you know, in some sense, the Kitty Sarantanisra's work in South Africa is just a beautiful example of. 
They, they didn't plan to go to South Africa and do what they did. They were visiting and people said, well, would you stay and teach a while? And then they stayed and they taught and then they were there and then it was like, oh, what's needed? That something was needed. There was an AIDS epidemic and so how to respond and not even knowing how to respond but having developed some of the skills and capacities and power to respond which first of all means to be present, to be awake, to be mindful. And so I left mindfulness for the last one, although technically it goes right in the middle of the five. When you see them listed, you'll often see it, you'll see, you'll see them where two are on top and two are on the bottom, and mindfulness is in the middle, partly because it balances all of these. It balances the different spiritual faculties. So I began actually talking about mindfulness last week. I was talking about why meditate and the importance of practice and, um, and the, both the skills and the fruits of practice. And I want to continue in that vein to talk about both the faculty and power of mindfulness. And the word that we're using, we translate um, into mindfulness is sati. Sati is the word. And I often feel that mindfulness is not the best translation. I, there isn't a best translation for me. Um, but I like, if, if it was up to me, I would translate sati as mindfulness, heartfulness, bodyfulness. And it, it's actually not just a mind quality, that it, 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 it in and of itself, it has a lot to do with seeing, being aware, being awake, but also being present, being accepting, being open, being willing to uh, uh, accept what's here in a, and be aware of what's here, but with a warmth, with a kindness. It's not dry. It's re true mindfulness doesn't actually work if it's dry, disdaining, um, cold. It, it has to have the heart. It has to have the heart. And, and mindfulness, you know, implies just being in the head. Unfortunately, we, we have a, uh, we've got a more disembodied understanding of the mind than we used to have. Originally, the word mind, when it, as it came from the Greek, um, uh, mind was first of all located in the torso, in the torso, and always meant it, and, and the, the word mind itself always actually uh, implied to embrace. It wasn't simply to think, but to embrace, to hold in mind. That it's a, a capacity of mind. And this is describing the, the capacity or quality of mindfulness is to hold things in mind. And this holding already implies the, the body and the presence of being here, being here now. And so it's not, a, it's not just simply a mental activity, but it asks for our full presence, our actual embodiment. That to be mindful is both has a cognitive capacity, but it's got a somatic aspect also. This is the actual being here in the moment as a living reality, not just a mental idea or picture.
So mindfulness is a training. It's a training that the Buddha gave us. He described it this way. He said, my friends, it is through the lovely clarity of mindfulness that you can let go of grasping after past and future, overcome attachment and grief, abandon all clinging and anxiety, and awaken an unshakable freedom here, now. My friends, it is through the lovely clarity of mindfulness that you can let go of grasping after past and future, overcome attachment and grief, abandon all clinging and anxiety, and awaken an unshakable freedom of heart, excuse me, here, now. So this is the promise, the possibility of mindfulness, of bodyfulness, of heartfulness, of learning how to use our human incarnation in the service of awakening. Mindfulness is a tool for us to learn how to deal with the um, vicissitudes of our human life, the ordinary vicissitudes of our human life, the, the everyday dukkha of human life. How many people don't know the word dukkha? Let me just see. Okay, a few people. I'll just say dukkha is generally translated as suffering. It's a, and dukkha is much broader than that. It's much broader than the obvious suffering. It's the, it's the suffering of a bad dharma talk is, is dukkha also, right? Or the, you know, or being, you know, missing the bark by 10 seconds is dukkha. Or somebody dying is dukkha. Or war is dukkha. Or, you know, having a bad hair day is dukkha. It, it's, it's quite broad. It's it, any, really, it just includes all, everything from the most common, ordinary, I stub my toe, to the most tragic suffering that we see on the planet at any time. It's all dukkha. That's all dukkha. And it's not a mistake. It's not a mistake from a Buddhist perspective. Doesn't mean we don't respond to it, but in the sense it's not a mistake means that that if you live in the human realm, the human realm has a certain amount of dukkha. It's just how it is. And it's really based partly on the fact that we are embodied spirit. That and as embodied beings we will get sick, we will get old, we will die, we will lose those we love. Those we love will lose us. This is just the reality of life in this realm of existence. And it's dukkha. It's not bad because it's dukkha, it's just dukkha. The dukkha is part of what motivates us to practice. Partly because the Buddha said that he teaches that there is suffering, there is dukkha, and there is freedom from suffering. He said, I teach one thing, suffering and the end of suffering. And so there's this great paradox given to us. What does that mean? How do we do this? We all know about dukkha, right? What is this end of dukkha? Mindfulness is his teaching, is his contemplative teaching that he gives to us 
um, to realize the end of suffering. As it says here, to awaken an unshakable freedom of heart here and now. And so mindfulness or this heartfulness or this bodyfulness is a training that gives us the faculty. It provides the faculty so we can learn how to be with human experience, with the vicissitudes of human life, and find the freedom that's available in the middle of the whole show and any part of it. That there is this possibility to steward our, our experience or be the guardians of our lives, of our experience, of our feelings and of our thoughts and of our bodies and of our families and of our work and our relationships and our political life, that we can begin to show up in every area of our life, find our ground and our presence and respond and respond skillfully, respond in the service of awakening. That we can find a balance and a peacefulness and a clarity and an understanding and a kindness. And so mindfulness develops certain qualities First of all, the quality to be, to know. To know what's happening as it's happening. Like right now, to be mindful means to be aware of what's happening with your body. Or what's happening in your heart. Or what's happening in your mind. And it's not that one is more important than the other. Generally, it's what's predominant right now. Sometimes maybe your body is really tired and that's predominant and you're aware of it, you're mindful of it. Or perhaps your heart is more predominant and you're sad or you're really happy and you're aware of that. Or maybe it's your mind, maybe you're thinking about the talk and the talk is making your mind tight, you're actually aware of the atmosphere of mind. Or maybe the talk is a good talk and your mind's starting to feel open to the possibilities that you don't even know and you can feel the openness of mind. Or maybe you're chatting to yourself while I'm talking and it's getting a little confusing. You don't know who to listen to, me or you. You know, you're talking about what happened yesterday and oh, should I really come here and I don't need to hear another Dharma talk. I've heard so many. and So you can't quite even hear me and you can hear the clutter of mind. You can start to be mindful of that. And you'll notice whatever I'm saying, whatever example I'm giving, at the same time I'm saying, oh, we can be mindful of that. And this is the great work of awareness in that sense. This is the great work of mindfulness, which is a subset of awareness, is that we can be mindful of whatever's true now. Whether it's the most surface truth, the most obvious thing, or perhaps be aware of the deepest truth of who and what we are. Whatever experience we have, we can be aware of it. We can be mindful of it. And, and the knowing is an important quality of mindfulness. And of course, for us to really be able to be mindful, we have to be open. The mind has to be open. We have to be open to what's actually here. If our mind's closed and we say, no, I don't want to be aware of that. I don't want to be aware of feeling oh, irritated. 
then we can't be mindful of it. Or if we don't want to be aware of falling in love, if, if, we, if we deny, you know, when somebody opens our hearts, if we get, that makes us too nervous, we can't be mindful of it. We can be mindful of the contraction. We can always start where we are, but ultimately we want to be open to this human experience so that we can be mindful of it. And of course, to really be open to anything, we need to have some warmth, some heart, some care. And it really means uh, appreciating what in Buddhism is called this precious human life, precious human life. I was, I'm reading, um, Jack Cornfield just gave me a preview of his new book, uh, which isn't out yet, so I've been looking through it, and there's some beautiful teaching stories in there. One of the stories was about a man who had serious cancer, his head was swollen from the tumors, and Jack, he was on a retreat, and, and um, Tungpulu Sayadaw, uh, was came to the retreat and Jack had him meet with Tungpulu Sayadaw. And Jack thought, you know, that Tungpulu Sayadaw would give him teachings about how to die consciously because he was close to dying, this man. Wasn't, wasn't too far away. And he said he was really surprised at what Tungpulu Sayadaw taught when he met with the man. Um, because um, he didn't give him teachings on dying and how to be mindful of dying. He gave him teachings about living. And he said, you really have to fight to live because this is a very precious human life and you want to you wanna live as long as you can so you can get as awake as you can while you're alive. And he, and he said what Tangpulu Saidao actually did was he... Um, he did some blessings for him, put his hand, did some healing. And a lot of the, a lot of the, traditionally, a lot of the monks, both in Burma and Thailand, were shamans. And so he put his hands on the man's head and did some blessings and healing. He made certain water for him to drink and gave him certain prayers also. Um, to, and that the man ended up living a number, not that long, but a few, definitely longer than was expected for a few years. And so this precious human birth, this precious incarnation that we have, includes everything you feel, everything you think, every experience you have is part of that preciousness. And so that attitude becomes part of the mindfulness. Instead of judging ourselves, berating ourselves, condemning ourselves, instead of thinking that what's happening for us is wrong or bad or we've made a mistake or we've made a mess of it, that there's a different, a different basis to respond to our life. And it's, uh, it's not that we might not want to change things. We're not, this is not, we're not talking about a passivity, but that there's a receptivity that becomes the basis for how we respond to our life. And that receptivity is kind. That receptivity is warm. It's, it's really loving, ultimately. Embracing, you know, as I said, the, originally the word mind meant to hold in mind. 
And it, it, it's closer to the beholding of the old days, another archaic word we don't use, to behold. To behold the breath, to behold the body, or behold the feelings already implies the not just the preciousness of human life, but the magic or the mystery of human life, which is inherent, which is one of the reasons why it is precious. That we think it all, that we see it all, that we hear it all, that we taste it all, that we smell, that we're alive, that we feel, that we're sensitive, that we love and care. It's a mystery, and it's a beautiful mystery. And part of our job is to behold this mystery so that it shows us its jewels, it shows us its gems, it shows us its riches, which is what awakening is. This is from this is Jack's new book. It's on Buddhist psychology, and he has a story here. He says, if you've ever seen the film Gorillas in the Mist, you know about Diane Fossey, the courageous field biologist who befriended a tribe of gorillas. Fossey had gone to Africa to continue the work of her mentor, George Schaller, a renowned primatologist who had collected more intimate information about gorilla life than any scientist before him. When his colleagues asked how he was able to learn so much about these shy and elusive creatures, he attributed to one simple thing. He didn't carry a gun. Previous generations of biologists had entered the territory of these huge animals with the assumption that they were dangerous. So the scientists came with an aggressive spirit, large rifles in hand. The gorillas could sense the danger around these rifles, rifle-bearing men and kept a far distance. By contrast, Schaller and later Fossey entered the territory without weapons. They had to move slowly, gently, and above all, respectfully towards these creatures. In time, sensing the benevolence of these humans, the gorillas allowed them to come among them and learn their ways. Sitting still hour after hour with careful, patient attention, Fossey finally understood what she saw, a whole new world of tribal and family relationships, unique personalities, habits, and communication. As the African-American sage George Washington Carver explained, Anything will give up its secrets if you love it enough. And so mindfulness has to be heartfulness because we want to know the secret of what it is to be a human being, as George Washington Carver said. We want to know the secret of what is this incarnation, what is this life that's sitting right in your seat, because this is where the Dharma is, as the Buddha said, in this fathom-long body, you will find the whole cosmos. In this fathom-long body, the whole cosmos sits right here. And it's true. It's actually true. It's not a metaphor. The whole universe sits right in our seat. And we want to know it. And as part of learning about it, as part of unfolding the mystery of this of what's here, we need to be kind towards it. We need to be warm towards it. We want to see. So in this way, mindfulness starts, it's a practice. 
So often we won't feel this way, right? Something will come and we'll feel like, oh, I'm a shit now, you know, or, you know, I blew it again, or I'm this or that, or no, I shouldn't have these feelings of anger or hatred or fear or sadness or lust or whatever it is. And then we remember, oh, I'm judging, I'm judging, judging, judging. And you don't have to believe the judgment and you stay present and the feeling's still there. I'm pissed. You know, what are you going to do? If you're pissed, you're pissed, right? You know, you could say, no, I should be a good Buddhist. Buddhists don't get angry. I'm pissed at that person. I'm still going to kill him, right? And we know about this, don't we? <laughs> So, but then, but we have this other possibility, which is to be mindful of anger. And then mindfulness can begin to do its magic, can begin to reveal its liberating possibilities. That we can see, oh, anger can be here, and we don't have to be caught by it. We don't have to be in the thrall of the anger. Really, the, the, technically the term is, we don't have to identify with the anger. What's tricky here, and this is when the skill develops, is very important, is we don't want to dissociate from the anger. And this is where the body becomes a really important part of mindfulness. This is where the body helps us metabolize the somatic, energetic uh, um, component of the anger. Anger is just not an idea. It's a fire. It's a heat. It's got its own energy. And the grounding in the body will let that energy begin to metabolize and let the dross, the, the uh, impurities release so that the purity of what's there can begin to show itself. And then the anger has the possibility of transmuting or transforming so it shows us what's what's at, at, at the ground of it or the essence of it, which may be clarity or strength. And then, and then we can respond. Then we can respond not out of anger, but out of clarity. Not out of a habitual reactivity, but because something needs to be responded to. And we can respond with strength and power and conviction but not based on some um, uh, uh, conditioned reaction and habit. There's a poem from Wendell Berry. It's a, another example about fear. He says, I go among trees and sit still. He becomes mindful. I go among trees and sit still. All my stirring becomes quiet around me like circles in water. My tasks lie in their places where I left them asleep like cattle. Then what I am afraid of comes. What I am afraid of comes. I live for a while in its sight. What I fear in it leaves it. And the fear of it leaves me. It sings and I hear its song. There's a song here for us to discover with the power of mindfulness. And mindfulness has the power both to allow us to be present with our fear or our anger or our sadness or any of the difficulties. 
of course, as well as with all the other emotions, our happiness and our courage and our, our um, uh, love and our good-heartedness. And it keeps revealing what's true. It will keep revealing what's true. What's there at the depth. And then when the fear goes, we see what's actually here. We see what we were afraid of or why we were afraid. We don't have to think our way through this. This will happen very naturally. Or we see that even, even if the same circumstances are here, we're not afraid. And it's beautiful to watch that transmutation of the human heart from fear to presence to courage. And it's not just us. I want to read you from the Buddha. This is the Buddha. He had fears also. And he says, How would it be if in the dark of the month, with no moon, I were to enter the most most strange and frightening places, near tombs and in the thick of the forest, that I might come to understand fear and terror? In doing so, a wild animal would approach, or the wind rustled the leaves and I would think perhaps the fear and terror now comes. And being resolved to dispel the hold of that fear and terror, I remained in whatever posture it arose, whether I was sitting or standing, walking or lying down. And I did not change until I had faced that fear and terror in that very posture until I was free of its hold upon me. And having this thought, I did so. And by facing the fear and terror, I became free. And so we learn mindfulness as a faculty provides the capacity to face our human life, our human existence. And it does it by giving us the capacity to be here. And to be here in the most simple way to be here a little bit letting go of what's extraneous. Letting go of our thoughts about the past or the future. Letting go of what happened before, what we imagine might happen. That we get to get here with whatever's here now. With our body or with our heart or with our mind. The Buddha, my friend Gil Fransdale, he likes to mention this, that often you read suttas, you read the teaching stories of the Buddha, and he begins by saying, here, bhikkhus, meaning practitioners or monks and nuns. He'll say, here, and then he'll start his talk. Because he's emphasizing the most important point right at the beginning, here. Here's where the talk is. Here's where we are. Here's where the whole, all of life is right now, is here. You know, it's always so striking to contemplate that your whole life is gone except for what's here right now. Everybody get that? Your whole life is gone. Yesterday is is gone. You know, the turn of the century, remember that? Remember when the computers were going to all die and all? That's gone. Your third birthday is gone. It's, it's quite a stunning uh, contemplation 
to really see that everything is here. This moment is what is. The future is not here. You know that great line from, uh, what's his name, American writer, who said, um, the worst things in my life never happened. Right? He was always, we're always imagining the future, how it's going to be. Mark Twain, thank you, said that. My life has been filled of terrible disasters, most of which never happened. That's a different translation. Um, you know, and have you noticed that in your own life? How much we imagine life as opposed to being here? And how when we actually get here, it's really it's a different life than just the life of thought and ideas and beliefs and images and, you know, memories. It's actually a different life. And it's why we love often being in nature, because we actually get here when we're in nature. Or why we love a, a beautiful dance performance, because we're actually there and the dance is so beautiful. The person is so present and mindful that, that we catch it. We're actually present. We're not thinking about our work during the dance performance, because it's so riveting. And we're here. The same with athletics, a basketball game or football game, whatever. Or, or if we're riding our bike or swimming in the bay, we're really here. And, that's, and we think, oh, it's this or that. Actually, it's because what we love most is being here because we're alive. Thoreau said, that day dawns to which we are awake. That day dawns to, to which we are awake. If we're not here, Nothing's here in some sense. And so the Buddha would begin by saying, here, here bhikkhus, here, now. Let's be here. Let's be here together. And you can even notice right now what happens when you get here. Don't even think about the talk. Simply be here. And then if there are thoughts about the talk, be mindful of them. Because the mindfulness provides this capacity. It uses its, it is this capacity to focus the awareness to be aware of what's happening. And it's not bound by what's happening. To be aware of a thought is not to be bound by the thought. To be aware of a feeling is not simply to be in the thrall of the feeling. It means to feel it fully, but also something that is there that is not the feeling. To be aware of the sensation of the body is to feel the sensation, but there's also something there that's not the sensation. To be aware of the space of the room, or the sound of the traffic, or the colors. There's the object of awareness, and then there's the, the, the awareness itself. David Wagner, Wagner, he wrote a poem called Lost. He said, stand still. Stand still. The trees ahead and the bushes behind the bushes behind you are not lost. Stand still. The trees ahead and the bushes behind you are not lost. 
wherever you are is called here. And you must treat it as a powerful stranger. You must ask permission to know it and be known. The forest breathes. Listen. It answers. I have made this place around you. If you leave it, you may come back again saying, here. This is really the one of the beauties and graces of, of mindfulness. doesn't matter how many times you're not mindful. As soon as you get here, the present moment will never reject you. It's the best lover that way. Right? You know, you know how you think, oh, your lover's always happy to see you and it's always fun. No, and then they're like, they're busy or whatever. It's not, it's like, oh, they don't like me anymore. Present moment will never say go away. When you get here, it's here for you. Life is here for you. He continues, he said, I have made this place around you. If you leave it, you may come back again saying here, no two trees are the same to raven. No two branches are the same to wren. If what a tree or, or bush does is lost on you, you are surely lost. Stand still. The forest knows where you are. You must let it find you. The Dharma is available to you. The Dharma is open to you. The Dharma is one of the lineages of the human race that is given to all of us. Without discrimination, without distinction, whether by class or by race or by gender or by sexual preference or by proclivity or color of your hair or eyes or anything, country, culture, it doesn't matter. This is one of the great lineages of the human race and it's given to you as soon as you get here, as soon as you're willing to be here. And this is the promise and the power of mindfulness is that we have the access to the wisdom of humanity through this practice of mindfulness and the teachings of the Buddha as one of the, as one of the stewards of human wisdom, of human love, of human understanding. Let's sit together for a minute before we end. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.